Warning, this month's opening contains descriptions of violence that may be disturbing to some and should be disturbing to all. Henri had been in church that fateful morning. He went to church every chance he could those days. What could he do? His wife was such an ill-tempered, nasty shrew. He hadn't had sex in years. His wife's sister was so beautiful and so unhappy with the drunken, abusive loser she was married to. Their affair had lasted about a year. He finally called it off as he couldn't live with the guilt any longer. Still, Henri knew the penalty God would give him for such infidelity. It was on his mind constantly. Then the announcement came that Sunday that changed his life. The Pope had called a crusade against the hated Cathar heretics known as the Albigensians. This was beyond Henri's wildest dreams. He would join the crusade, get full indulgence for all of his sins, and never even have to leave France. Now, a year later, here they were, in a great war camp just outside the town of Béziers in southern France. Henri loved everything about crusading, almost. Okay, so he wasn't a knight, just a common foot soldier, and as such he had no retainers, and it was his job to help haul all of the food and equipment necessary for their army. It had been many long, hot days marching all the way to the south of France, but Henri was so happy they weren't marching all the way to the Holy Land. Now they were camped outside of Béziers. He loved the camaraderie with the close friends he had made on the march. The leaders were preparing for the siege, and it would be a few days before they got started. At about noon, as Henri was carrying wood to the builders for the construction of the siege towers, he saw the city gates open and armored knights and their attendants ride out of the town. There were so many of them, Henri was afraid that he and his friends would be overwhelmed and taken. Before the knights reached them, however, the crusader cavalry was able to mount up and meet them. At first, it didn't look good for the crusaders. The town knights were in their armor, and the crusader knights just had time to put on their mail, grab their weapons, and mount their horses. But soon, more and more crusader cavalry joined the fray, and the town cavalry was overwhelmed. The fighting continued for some time, as Henri and his friends watched, but it was clearly going to be a rout. As Henri took in the scene, someone shouted, Hey, the cavalry is out here! The town's undefended! At once, the whole camp was up, rushing to pick up their swords and weapons. Henri was among the first to do so. He grabbed a ladder, and his friends fell in line behind him, all carrying the long ladder as fast as they could. There were three other ladder teams in front of them, but they rushed to put up their ladder as fast as they could. The other three ladders went up first, then Henri's. His team set the ladder, and Henri rushed up it, panting as fast as he could. He was exhausted but he felt he had to get to the top quickly. Henri was very disappointed. There were three men charging up ladders ahead of him. There'd be no way now that he would be the first over the wall. It had been all the talk in camp for the past week. Who would get the glory of being the first over the wall? And now there were three in front of him. It almost certainly wouldn't be Henri. But much to his surprise and joy, the men on the other ladders were engaged with soldiers on the wall and couldn't get over. Being the fourth in line, Henri had no one to meet him when he got to the top. One more step and he was up and over. Yes, it was him. He was the first over the wall. No one could take his glory away now. Henri ran down the walkway on top of the wall until he got to the soldier fighting off the crusader on the next ladder. The soldier turned to fight Henri, but the sword came from the ladder and he had to fight it off. While he did this, 
Henri ran the soldier through with his sword. It was the first blood Henri had ever drawn in a fight. He helped the fellow crusader off his ladder, and the two of them ran down the walkway and made quick work of the soldier at the next ladder. Within moments, crusaders were pouring over the walls from all of the ladders. Henri and the first crusaders he had surmounted the wall with ran down to the city gates. Again, there were a few soldiers there to guard them, and Henri and his comrades killed them in short order as well. As the first over the wall, Henri was given the honor of opening the gates of the city. Masses of crusaders were now piling into the city. The knights were still battling the town cavalry, so the foot soldiers that had overrun the town's defenses were leaderless. They didn't know what to do. They knew they were supposed to kill the heretics, but everyone was claiming to be a good Catholic. How could they identify the heretics? A messenger was sent to Arno Omri, the abbot in charge of the priests. Word came back, Kill them all, God will sort out his own. At last, this is what they had come for. It was time to kill heretics. Henri and his comrades turned on the town with a vengeance. The men were the first to die. They had grabbed swords, hoes, sticks, or whatever they could to defend themselves. It took some time, but after a while, they had killed all the men they could find. Turns out that slaughter is hard work. But now it was a bit easier. They could go through the houses one by one and kill everyone they found now mostly old men, women, and children. There was less rush now. If there were an attractive woman in the house, you could take your time and enjoy yourself a little before killing her and moving on. It was all okay. The Pope was granting plenary indulgences for all sins committed during the course of the crusade. The slaughter went on long into the night. Finally, almost everyone was dead. It had been an amazing day and night. Henri was exhausted from doing God's work killing heretics. Yeah, there had been non-heretics killed as well, but God would sort it all out. Welcome to Nero's Fiddle, episode 15. Love your neighbor and kill your enemy. Before we take a look at this week's church in the Middle Ages, let's pause to reflect on the foundation of the church. It had started, of course, with the teachings of Jesus, as we discussed in episode 11. Jesus had come preaching a new gospel that was unique in religious history at that point. It was a gospel of compassion, self-improvement, and caring for one another. For example, regarding compassion, so in everything, Do to others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the Law and the Prophets. Matthew 7, 12. On forgiveness. For if you forgive men when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. Matthew 6, 14-15. And on humility. He who is least among you all, he is the greatest. Luke 9.48 Regarding judgment, do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the same measure you use, it will be measured to you. Matthew 7.1-2 And love, love your neighbor as yourself. Luke 10.27 Discussing mercy, blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Matthew 
5, 7. And peacemaking. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Matthew 5, 9. Jesus' teachings sound familiar to our modern ears, though they're still sometimes difficult to put into practice. But when Jesus first preached this way, it was during a time when other religions still taught that good religious practice consisted of such things as making proper sacrifices to the goddess of fertility in order to be assured of a good harvest for the year. Preaching that one should forgive all those who have betrayed them was revolutionary to people at the time. It's true that Christianity had grown out of Judaism, so it wasn't 100% strange to Jewish ears. Still, when Jesus taught, Judaism was still at that point a sacrificial religion and would remain so until the destruction of the Second Temple in 70 AD. What a difference a thousand years in becoming one of the most powerful political forces in Western Europe can make. So, we pick up this episode already in the Middle Ages. The Albigensian Crusade began in 1209. By this time in church history, a French abbot was able to interpret Jesus' admonition to forgive those who do you wrong, to love your brother, and do to others as you would have them do unto you, as, don't just kill all the heretics in the city, but kill all the good Christians too in case some heretics should escape. In fairness to Abbot Arnaud, not everyone believes he really said this. For us, it doesn't really matter. The point is, everyone in the city was slaughtered because some of them believed differently than the form of Christianity sanctioned by the Pope in Rome. Over the millennia, the killer apes that preceded Homo sapiens on our hominin family tree were genetically selected to fear apes outside their troop. As our species progressed into Homo sapiens, this tended to mean that we feared tribes other than our own. We've seen how this fear of outsiders became the in-group-out-group dichotomy that has been a prime driver throughout human history. At this point in the Middle Ages, for Western European culture, this dichotomy went into overdrive. The biggest problem with a basic emotion like fear of others is that it's a general emotion, not a specific one. It's not a specific fear like fear of snake, where you're afraid of anything that slithers on its belly on the ground, but not all little animals such as kittens. The fear of others can be directed at anyone who is defined as other. When we lived in small hunter-gatherer tribes, it didn't cause much of a problem because it was quite clear who was in your tribe and who was in another tribe. Now Europeans lived in large kingdoms. England, in the year 1000, had an estimated population of a million and a quarter people. So who were outsiders? Sure, they were the non-English. But when you have a non-specific fear, like fear of others, it can be manipulated to be whoever the opinion makers decide. There were numerous opinion makers in the Middle Ages, but the primary one was the Catholic Church. Now imagine you're a pope or one of the leading cardinals of the church. Could you see as the biggest threat to Western civilization? The Catholic Church had worked incredibly hard to define its dogma and to disseminate it throughout Western Europe. So, the outgroup was defined as anyone who challenged the Catholic Church's dogmatic hegemony in Western Europe, or at least it was to middle-aged popes and cardinals. It's not the common person's calling to be a prophet or a philosopher. Certainly until the Enlightenment, the person on the street knew their place in the great chain of being, as we talked about last time. Their place was to listen to God, and listen to their betters. In the field of religious doctrine, it was their priest who told them what to believe, which they overwhelmingly did without question. 
If the priests told them that the Cathars were heretics and posed a danger to the soul of France, it was not likely to be questioned. Do we really need to get into the Crusades in detail? In the 8th century, the Umayyad Muslims had invaded Christian Spain and conquered the Al-Andalus, the southern part of Spain. Europe had seen them as a great threat since that time. The church was having its own problems at the time. The Great Schism had happened in 1053, in which what would become the Eastern Orthodox Church separated from the Roman Catholic Church. The church had always had political battles with local secular rulers, and there were social pressures caused by a population explosion as well. So when the Seljuk Turks took control of Jerusalem in 1095 and closed it to Christian and Jewish pilgrims, and the Byzantine emperor requested military help, Pope Urban II had all the pretext he needed to launch the First Crusade. There were several crusades. The first one in 1095 attacked and was successful in conquering Jerusalem, but held up for less than a hundred years. Most of the other crusades were also directed at the Holy Land, which was under Muslim control, but not all of them. One ended up sacking Christian Constantinople. The definition of who could be an outsider was fluid in the Middle Ages, as it is now. The reason I picked the Albigensian Crusade for the opening this week is that it shows the fluidity of our concept of outsiders. French Christians were the target of this crusade. If there is anyone that a peasant in northern France didn't need to risk his life to go and kill, it would have been peaceful fellow Christians in the south of France, whether they chose a different sect of Christianity or not. The Albigensians posed no danger whatever to peasants or tradesmen in the north of France, and there is no objective reason for northern peasants to drop everything and go fight them, except that their leaders told them that it was imperative, and they never questioned their leaders. It's also worth pausing to note the bloodthirsty nature of the slaughter of Bazirs. Probably more than 10,000 people were slaughtered due to the beliefs of only some of them. Now let's take a step back to put on this perspective. Slavery, as it had been practiced by the Romans, was much more uncommon in the Middle Ages. Serfdom was common, but it was much less harsh than Roman slavery had been. Human sacrifice had been banished since before the Roman Empire. Gladiatorial games and killing other humans for sport would have also been considered barbaric by this time. Humanity and compassion continued to make strides during the Middle Ages, as they did throughout history. But, as always, the progress continued to be painstakingly slow. Bear baiting and games in which animals would be tortured to death would gain in popularity in the 12th century. Sure, it's better to watch a bear being slowly tortured to death than a Christian killed by lions, but the improvement is a matter of degree, not a quantum leap. But somehow, even with all these gains in civility, an entire city could be brutalized and murdered by people not so unlike themselves. And let's remember, the wholesale slaughter of populations would still be acceptable to Europeans for centuries to come. Okay, so then there's the Inquisition. It's got a lot of bad press over the years, but what people don't get is that they were just trying to help people. Seriously. It wasn't simply about rooting out people who don't believe like us, torturing them and burning them alive in front of the whole town so everybody gets to watch. That wasn't it at all, at least to the Inquisitors. Understand it from the Inquisitors' point of view. If someone believed and practiced a heretical teaching, their fate would be to spend an eternity in hell. 
There's nothing that could be done to them here on earth that would be worse than spending the rest of eternity in hell. Not only that, but there was the real risk that they would infect other perfectly safe Christians with their heretical teachings, not only dooming themselves to an eternity in hell, but threatening the entire town, if not the whole kingdom, if their heresy went unchecked. For the Inquisitor, whatever they could do to stop this tragedy from happening was definitely worth it, and certainly not too extreme. This is crucial to understanding the Inquisition. The people committing the atrocities were convinced that they were doing a favor to those they were persecuting. Plus, there weren't all that many people prosecuted by the Inquisition compared to the number arrested. Step one of the inquisitorial process was to interrogate the accused. Yeah, it was probably a foregone conclusion that the Inquisitor thought that the accused was a heretic. We're still centuries away from due process. But the heretic was given a chance to recant his or her heresy. No recantation? That's okay. Still no torture. Step two, take the heretic to the torture chamber and show him or her the instruments of torture. This is the rack where you will be stretched and your bones will slowly be pulled out of their sockets. Here is the rope that will bind your hands, and there on the ceiling is the pulley where you will be pulled upward so that you will hang by your hands tied behind your back, etc. Understandably, this step generally brought about a confession of heresy. The heretic was then assigned his or her penance, and all went away happy. Well, maybe not the accused, who now had to do some kind of penance, perhaps walking in sackcloth to Jerusalem. But the inquisitor likely honestly felt that he had done a good day's work and that both the accused and society were far better off for his efforts. The medieval church gets a lot of bad press for the Crusades and the Inquisition, but there is so much more to it. The Catholic Church was completely extra-governmental. It was not at all like the Muslim Caliphate, where both religion and state were completely intertwined. This means that the church got no money from the monarchies of Western Europe. Of course, this wasn't a problem for the church, because the Bible told everyone that it was their duty to tithe 10% of their incomes. The medieval church had plenty of money. The territory and influence of early Dark Age churches was more or less equivalent to the church during the Roman Empire. As the Middle Age progressed and European civilization expanded, the territory and influence of the church expanded as well. This meant that there was one pope with authority over the religious lives of all the monarchs, nobles, peasants, and all of the dozens of kingdoms that comprised Western Europe in the Middle Ages. Not only did the church provide one unified religious direction for all these kingdoms with diverse languages, peoples, and cultures, it provided Latin as a lingua franca for the literati of all these realms to be able to speak together, as Alexander had provided Greek as a lingua franca for the ancient world. Just because these kingdoms had a common language in which their educated men could communicate, and a common religion and religious leader, didn't mean they didn't go to war against each other. One can get lost studying all the different medieval wars. In one sense, it's not all that productive. You might say everything you really need to know about medieval wars and rivalries can be summarized in one sentence. They fought a lot. Okay, that's a bit of an oversimplification, but it's kind of true. In any case, we're not going to understand how we got to here by understanding who won which war. What we need to know about the church in the Middle Ages is that it was ubiquitous. It reached everywhere in medieval society, from the archbishop or cardinal who served the king, to the mendicant friar who served the little village that was three days' walk from the nearest town, 
There was therefore something common to all their culture. It was much more than that, however. Gone were the days when members of each small communal Christian movement chose their leaders from the best, most respected, and most moral of their leaders. By the 12th and 13th century, the papacy was large, well-funded, and, unfortunately, fully politicized. The medieval convention of primogeniture left all the property to the oldest male child, leaving younger, intelligent, and highly motivated sons looking around for their next best option. Where could they go where there was lots of money and power? There were not many paid governmental positions at the time, and being a merchant would have been disgraceful for a member of the nobility. The church was the answer for thousands of these unlanded gentry. I can't remember which Roman writer said that the lust for power can be an unstoppable force. And I forget the exact quote, but what was true in the Roman Empire was certainly true in the Middle Ages. Since monarchies were inherited, this basically left the church as a place for the rich, powerful, and ambitious to fight out their power struggles. So, what have we learned about the Roman Catholic Church in the Middle Ages? Medieval inquisitors were bad dudes. Very bad dudes. Yeah, I know. They thought they were doing good. But as far as I know, they, or at least some of them, enjoyed sending their victims to torture and felt very justified in doing so on those rare occasions when they got to step three of their interrogations and those they were interrogating refused to recant and admit to their heresy. Were they filled with some kind of schadenfreudic joy when listening to their screams as they were being burned at the stake? I don't know. I suppose some of them probably were. I know they thought they were doing good work in ridding society of heretics, but that doesn't mean they were doing anything useful for society. Seriously, their job was to scare the wits out of people and on occasion torture them mercilessly, and on even rarer occasions to burn them at the stake. So I stand by my statement. These were bad dudes, no matter how much they thought they were doing good. Who else would put in an application for this job? Still, there had been a law in Rome that a slave's testimony was not valid unless he or she had been tortured. Yeah, that's right. Every slave going through the legal process had to be tortured, no matter how honest or forthcoming he or she seemed to be. Fast forward to the Inquisition, and people were only tortured as the last resort. A thousand years for this kind of small incremental improvement in social practices? Yeah, that's about right. Human history has been an inexorable march towards a more civil society. But did I mention this march has been breathtakingly slow? The other thing we note about the Inquisition is that medieval Christians like to hang out with their own kind. Yes, the in-group-out-group dichotomy and fear of outsiders is definitely something we've discussed from the very beginning of our journey. But medieval Christians have now dialed it up to the next level. They set up an entire judicial arm of the church to root out and torture anyone who was an outsider until they became an insider. This didn't make Western Europe completely unusual in the world at the time, but they were the most extreme that I'm aware of, save perhaps India. The Inquisition aside, by the end of the Middle Ages, the Roman Catholic Church was nothing like the small communal cells of Christians as it began in the decades after Jesus' ministry. It was a highly political institution run at the top by rich, powerful, and ambitious men. As always, there's so much history here that's worth delving into. 
There's Gregory the Great, the great schism where the Greek Orthodox Church broke away from Rome. The Western schism, when the Church had two and even three competing popes at once. The Germanic king, Henry IV, humbling himself and standing barefoot in the snow before the Pope and fighting between the papacy and the monarchies of Western Europe. We certainly don't have time to cover all of that. And let's not forget that it was the church that took care of the poor and helpless during this time. The rich and ambitious found their place at the top of the church hierarchy. Those who truly cared about the poor and suffering spent their time caring for those at the bottom of medieval society. There's no way we'll ever have the kind of information about them that we do about the popes. They didn't write the histories. But it's worth taking a moment to mention some of the more notable saints that do happen to be well documented. One of my favorites is St. Francis of Assisi, a 13th century Catholic. He was never a priest. He renounced all worldly goods and dedicated himself to a life of poverty and serving the poor. With the Pope's approval, he established the Franciscan order that spread throughout Europe and served the poor. The friars you hear about walking from village to village in the Middle Ages were Franciscans. Claire of Assisi was a follower of St. Francis and founded her own order called the Poor Clares. Orders like hers and others provided help to women throughout the Middle Ages. Whether they might have wished for other options or not, a woman with no job and no resources at least didn't have to end up on the street in most European cities. She could always join an order like the Poor Clares. Then there's my favorite saint, Joan of Arc, who, as a teenage peasant girl, convinced the heir to the throne of France that it was his destiny to defeat the English in the Hundred Years' War and become the King of France. My point is that there were a lot of bad, power-hungry men that found their way to the top in medieval society. But there are also many, many compassionate, caring men and women who voluntarily accepted their places at the bottom of society, caring for the poor and unfortunate. Compassion was strong and thriving in the Middle Ages. It just hadn't made its way to the top yet. This week's read is The Race for Paradise, an Islamic history of the Crusades, by Paul Cobb. We haven't had time to go into the Crusades in great detail, but they're a big part of Western history and worth knowing something about. We've all heard at least something about the Crusades from the Western perspective. Paul Cobb's book is a refreshing look at this period from Islamic sources. Cobb is a Westerner, so doesn't write from an Islamic perspective, but his use of Islamic sources as his primary viewpoint gives us a different and refreshing perspective on this much-debated period in Western history. Enjoy. See you next week.